This is my Bible. God's written living word to me. Open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. I want to continue today in our series on the subject of grace, and I've I've entitled this morning's message, Forgiveness, the Messy Side of Grace. We'll begin reading our text in Romans chapter 5, and I'm reading from the message translation, starting in verse 20. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. Now that's a, that's a vital and important point. Not so much, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that point this morning, but realize where there's more law, sin abounds. Every time you attempt to deal with temptation or addiction or an unholiness or an area of your life where you feel that you're falling short by adding more prayer time, uh, more Bible reading, fasting, and it's an obligatory type of thing, trust me, your addiction will increase. Your temptation will be overwhelming. You cannot deal with sin through the law. Help me out, Bill. And that door, please. Let's get that shut. (laughs) It's all right with me. Just run right across the front, brother. I've already announced it to everybody, so. (laughs) All the passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death. And that's the end of it. Grace invites us into life. Wow. Now, I mentioned to you at the beginning of December when I started this series that I've been reading after Philip Yancey, his book entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? Isn't that a wonderful title? And I've based this series on Philip's book. Why do we hate forgiveness? Do you relate to that term? That concept? You may have never thought of it in that light. But so often we really do hate forgiveness because even after forgiveness, that wound in our life continues. We think of the sadness, the desperation, the wound, the terrible deep wound that must exist in the lives and the families of those that Jeffrey Dahmer Serial rapist and killer forced upon those families. And still to this day, many of them have not forgiven. Did you know that Jeffrey Dahmer in his last months in prison gave his life to Jesus Christ? 
And that even the chaplain of the prison and the warden testified, this is a changed man. How about Nazi Germany and the concentration camps? Is there anything more despicable, anything that caused greater worldwide wound in our psyche, in, in human life, than the concentration camps of Nazi Germany? Our own Columbine, most recently Newtown, Connecticut. How about your own divorce, your own molestation that happened to you when you were young? Or perhaps even something current like school bullying that's going on. See, it's easy for us to talk about forgiveness and yet much different to actually do it and then walk in it and have it produce in us that joy and that life of Christ that God wants it to produce. Philip Yancey says, and I quote, the very taste of forgiveness somehow seems wrong to us. Even when we have committed a wrong, we want to earn our way back into the injured party's good gracious, good graces. We prefer to crawl on our knees, to wallow, to do penance, to kill a lamb. And religion often obliges us. End quote. In Proverbs, or excuse me, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, the prodigal son, we mentioned the story last week, and you know well how that the prodigal son, the younger of two, came to his father very early after turning of age and said, I want my inheritance. I'm going to leave. And he left the house. He left the family, and he went out, wasted his entire inheritance on riotous living, and eventually found himself feeding slop to pigs, destitute, lonely, cold, broken, hungry, and without any money. And the scripture says, Then he came to himself and said, I'll go back to my father's house. Even his hired servants have plenty to eat. In verse 19, the scripture records how that when he came to his father, he made this statement, please take me on as a hired servant. But the scripture says that his father, while he was still speaking, just ignored him, didn't even let him finish speaking and said, servants, come prepare the fatted calf, put a robe on him, get the ring, put it on his finger. And so is our Heavenly Father's response to our failure. He does not require of us so much of the religious notion of justice and payment. Rather, he says, come on, start the party, as one translation says. How many of us are bound in religious tradition thinking that we have to wallow we have to beg. We have to provide justice. We somehow have to list our sins and make payment. 
You see, forgiveness is messy because forgiveness is unnatural. It goes against everything that we are as human beings. And it goes against just about all of the Christian teaching that we've been raised with. And yet, the Bible says Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Do we believe that? The word forgive contains the word give. Have you ever noticed that? That forgive contains the word give. And pardon contains the Greek word donum, which means gift. I pardon you. I I give you a gift. No, you're not deserving of it. But I'm not going to make you go through a bunch of religious ritual. I'm not going to make you wallow and crawl and beg. Start the party. Here's the ring. Here's a new coat. And the food spread is for you. We do not relate to that. Come on. Don't you hate forgiveness? (laughs) Don't you hate forgiveness? Because so often it's not fair. But God, it's not fair. You know, it's a little more fair when it's forgiveness for me. But when it's forgiveness for you, it is not fair. They need to wallow. They need to do penance. They need to do something to justify themselves. I've been wronged and I demand justice. Help me get it, Lord. In some of the Roman ruins, archaeologists have uncovered various curses written in Latin and inscribed on tin and bronze placards. Centuries ago, users of the baths tossed in these prayers as an offering to the gods of the baths, much as moderns toss coins in the fountains for luck. One asked for a goddess's help in blood vengeance against whoever stole his six coins. Another read this, quote, Dosimedes has lost two gloves. He asks that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple where she appoints. End quote. These were, these were prayers. You'll find similar things in the Psalms. Lord, get after him. Dig a pit. Let him fall into it. You have to be careful when you pray the Psalms, dear one. As New Covenant believers, you need to be careful what you select from the Psalms for prayers. And even our beloved Lord's Prayer. Many have taken that to teach that your forgiveness hinges upon you forgiving others. Is that not what we read? Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against us. And it is very common today from pulpits and on the radio as well as all other sources to hear it taught that if you don't forgive, God doesn't forgive you. If you don't forgive, God's sending, God is sending the demons after you. You're going to have a bad life. And nothing could be further from the revelation of forgiveness found in the New Testament. You need to keep in mind that the Lord's Prayer was given 
to a bunch of Jewish disciples that were just new in their following and that Christ had not yet died, been buried and risen again, paying it all. And there's things from the Old Covenant in which that prayer is really versed that do not translate into New Covenant revelation. So be careful. Say, why, I've never heard such a thing. What blasphemy? You're talking about the Lord's Prayer. Yes, and I'm talking about Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. The English Standard Version says it this way, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Amplified New Testament, forgiving one another readily and freely as God in Christ forgave you. Past tense, the message translation, forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. I'm not waiting to be forgiven. My forgiveness is not based on me forgiving you. My forgiveness is based on Christ, his work and finished work on the cross, and nothing more or less. He forgave me. Now, for me to live in for unforgiveness will for sure wreck my life. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But dear ones, God forgiving you is not based on you forgiving somebody else. To teach such things are to minimalize the wonderful and perfect work that Christ did on the cross. Think that Paul's alone by saying such in Ephesians? Well, here's Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. If one has a difference against another, readily pardon each other. Even as the Lord has freely forgiven you, so must you also forgive I don't forgive to get God's forgiveness. I forgive out of the grace and power that he's placed in me through having already forgiven me of all my sin. He's washed it away. Forgiveness is not a law of reciprocity. Rather, it's an action of taking the initiative. Many of you know the name Corey Ten Boom. One of the individuals whose family, entire family, was taken by the Nazis in Nazi Germany during the period of the concentration camps. She lost all but her sister, and her and her sister wound up in the camp together. She's author of The Hiding Place, While in prison, Corey saw incredible abuse, so inhumane that it drove the prisoners to incredible depths, including intentionally allowing lice to breed on their bodies because the more lice they had, the less likely it would be that the guards would molest them. And Corey even witnessed the death of her own dear sister during that time. After the war, God sent Cory Ten Boom on a mission of mercy through the war-torn cities, excuse me, war-torn cities to encourage residents to choose forgiveness over bitterness. She would motivate her audiences by sharing some of the atrocities that she had experienced, implying that if she could forgive such horrors, so could her listeners. One night when she was speaking, she immediately recognized a man who came walking down the aisle as a particularly cruel guard in one of the concentration camps. 
The man did not recognize her, however. As he approached Corey, he said, quote, Fraulein, you don't know me, but I was a guard in one of those camps. After the war, God saved me. I wish I could go back and undo those years, but I can't. But I've just been prompted by God to come tonight and to ask you, would you please forgive me? Then he extended his hand to her. Can you imagine the horrible thoughts and memories that raced through Corey's mind as she recognized his face and then even worse, heard his incredible plea for forgiveness? How could she? Corey said her arms froze at her side and she was literally unable to move. The flashbacks in her mind replaying the atrocities, the death of her sister, the abuse. And then God's Holy Spirit spoke to her. Corey, what have I been telling everyone else to do? What have I been telling you to tell everyone else to do? As an act of your will, you choose to forgive. Corey went on to explain what happened next. I reached out my hand and I put it in his and I said, You're forgiven. She later reported that at that moment it was like a dam broke loose. All the bitterness and resentment and God set me free. Now think of it all those years. Even doing the work of Christ, testifying, she carried that wound and was never free until she herself gave. Jonah wrestled with God's desire to show such grace. We read in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this from the Message Translation. And Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans from punishment into a program of forgiveness. It doesn't come natural to us, does it? Don't you hate forgiveness? <laughs> Philip Yancey says in his book, and I quote, by forgiving, I release my own right to get even and I leave all issues of fairness to God to work out. I leave it in God's hands, the scales that must balance justice and mercy. End quote. Let me give you three reasons this morning why we need to forgive. And you know, the urgency of what I'm speaking to you about takes precedence over other religious duties. You know, we have a lot going on here. We're very excited. I have a brand new kingdom ministry class starting. How exciting is that? We heard tell of all the tremendous things that are going to take place. We're finding our destiny this past Wednesday night. Prophet Sondra ministered to us. So many of us over those days got words from the Lord. I, I got several powerful words. But you know, in relationship to what I'm talking to you about this morning, none of it 
really matters if we don't take care of this business. You say, how can that be? How dare, how dare you minimize what the Lord is doing? Well, listen to this, the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. So if when you are offering your gift at the altar, you there remember that your brother has any grievance against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make peace with your brother. Then come back and present your gifts. Our dealing with this subject of forgiveness takes precedence over all other religious duties. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, famous German theologian, also during the time of the Nazi rise and empire, wrestling with this command to love, said forgiveness is the peculiar, the extraordinary, the unusual that sets the Christian apart. And you know what? No other religion in the world has it. Because no other religion can promise an absolute change of life and heart to become like the very creator who forgives and who empowers us to walk in that very grace. Three reasons to forgive. Number one, it's God's nature. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 45. You have, heard it sa- uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you to show that you are children of your Father who is in heaven. I want to be a son. How about you? Do you want to be a son? Do you want to be a daughter? And as a son and a daughter, do you want to please him? Do you want to be close? Do you want to know him in 2013 like you've never known him before? Then the Bible says the old is finished. It used to be said in the old covenant. Religion taught us. Love those that are good to you, but hate your enemies. I say, do good to those who abuse you. Love your enemies. And through prayer, we go to the very side of our enemy. And we stand in proxy for them. vicariously we act on their behalf through prayer we stand at the very side of those that hate us and mistreat us and we pray for their release we pray for their forgiveness we send their sin away and we hold no grudge we exact nothing I don't know that I've ever thought about this until reading Philip's book But it so struck me, four simple words, God loves his enemies. He has to. To tell me to love mine, he must love his. And yet, us old covenant, (laughs) those of us steeped in old covenant religion, 
We enjoy praying those prayers against our enemies. We even do it politically. Let them fall, Lord. Take their seat away from them, O God. Smash him, Lord. And put a righteous person in their seat. I used to pray that way all the time over political leaders. <laughs> Question, how's that working for you? Because <laughs> you were praying that in this last election. How'd that work for you? Number two, reason number two, to forgive. We want to halt the cycle of pain and break the chains of ungrace. To halt the cycle of pain and to break the chains of ungrace. Henry Nouwen says this, and I quote, Forgiveness demands of me that I step over that wounded, wounded part of my heart that feels hurt and wronged and that wants to stay in control and put a few conditions between me and the one whom I am asked to forgive. End quote. See, this, this is the subject of the Gospels. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and pronounce guilty, and you will not be condemned and pronounced guilty. Acquit and forgive and release. Give up that resentment. Let it drop, and you will be acquitted and forgiven and released, Jesus said. And releasing that resentment in us is such a key. You know what the word resentment means? To feel again. And so when I am full of resentment, I rehearse those bitter feelings against you again and again and again. And if I was a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer, or if my child was in the classroom in Newport, Connecticut, and you betcha for the next five, maybe ten, maybe the rest of my life, some pronounce, I will never forgive. And for the rest of their life, they rehearse again and again all of the feelings, all of the sadness, all of the longing, all of the desperation, all the hopelessness. Dearly beloved, God has something better for your life than living in resentment. But it begins with a gift that only I can give. I have to forgive. You know, this whole thing about forgiveness is so unfair and we hate it so much. I, I think the Hindus maybe speak to this well. In Hinduism, it's far more satisfying the fairness that they work out in their doctrine of karma. Listen to this. Hindu scholars calculated with mathematical precision how long it may take for one person's justice to work itself out, for punishment to balance out all of my wrongs in this life and future lives. Ready? 6,800,000 incarnations. Now that sounds fair, doesn't it? In other words, I have a lifetime and a whole lot of other lifetimes to exact from you every penny, every measure to make you feel my pain. I want you to struggle. I want you, I want you to, to be beat down. I want you to crawl on your knees to me before I'll even consider 
giving you the gift that God freely gave me when I did not love him. I was not choosing him. In fact, I was running from him. And yet in my sin, when I did not love him, he chose. He laid down his life. He took my sin and became sin. Lewis Smedes says this, and I quote, The first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiveness. When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that that prisoner we set free was us. End quote. Reason number three. To loose the stronghold of guilt in the perpetrator. Again, to loose the stronghold of guilt that's in the perpetrator. Quoting Philip Yancey, he says, and I quote, Forgiveness breaks the cycle of blame and loosens the stronghold of guilt. Through it, we realize that we are not as different from the wrongdoer as we would like to think. And Simeon Wheel has said, and quote, I also am other than what I imagine myself to be. To know this is forgiveness. End quote. Larry Trapp, Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, made national headlines in 1992 when he renounced his hatred, tore down his Nazi flags, and destroyed as many cartons of hate literature. As Catherine Watterson recounts in her book, Not by the Sword, Trapp had been won over by the forgiving love of a Jewish cantor and his family. Though Trapp had sent them vile pamphlets, mocking big-nosed Jews and denying the Holocaust, though he had threatened violence in phone calls made to their home, though he had targeted their synagogue for bombing, the Cantor's family consistently responded with compassion and concern. Diabetic since childhood, Trapp was now confined to a wheelchair and rapidly going blind. In that condition, the Cantor's family invited Trapp into their home to care for him. They showed me such love that I couldn't help but love them back, Trapp later said. He spent his last months of life seeking forgiveness from Jewish groups, the NWACP, and the many individuals that he had hated. There's somebody knocking at the door of your heart right now. Every one of us. There's somebody in need of a very special gift that only you can initiate. There's a surgery that actually takes place, and this is where it's really messy. A surgery. Of forgiveness. Let me give you the quick steps. Number one, slice away the wrong from the person. Slice away the wrong from the person. Number two, disengage that person from his hurtful act. And then number three, change his identity from the one who hurt you to the one who needs you, from the one who alienated you to the one who belongs to you, from the one who you branded as evil 
to the person weak in his needs. Isn't that powerful? And again, Philip Yancey quoting him. God shattered the inexorable law of sin and retribution by invading the earth. He accepted onto his innocent self all the severe demands of justice. Jesus broke forever the chains of ungrace. Do you realize this morning that God performed that surgery for us? Every one of you. And for the person who's done you wrong, or that you cannot find it in your heart to forgive, maybe it's a family member that you've not spoken to in 10, 15, over 20 years. Perhaps it's somebody at work that you despise and can't, can't fathom being around. Perhaps it's a little sister or brother who's mistreated you and you bear that wound and you carry it. Perhaps it's a molestation that took place in your family when you were young. God has performed surgery, not only for me, but for that person that I hate. That person that I'm holding out and exacting punishment from before I'll dare to begin to feel differently and forgive them. You say, how is it that God performed that surgery on me, pastor? Well, number one, God removes the sin barrier of those who've wronged him. Doesn't he? God removes the sin barrier of those who have wronged him. Look at this, Romans 8, verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And then secondly, he surrenders his right to get even and then bears the cost in his own body. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. And then third, God changes my identity. He changes my status from fallen and deserving of death and retribution to one who is restored. He adopts me as his child. He recreates me in his own divine image. The righteousness of God in Christ. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. That in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Again those steps. Slice away the wrong from the person. Secondly, disengage that person from his hurtful act. And third, change his destiny. Change their destiny. And you don't have to speak to them to do this. You can accomplish all of this in prayer. In concluding, I want to again quote Philip Yancey from his book. What's so amazing about grace? Listen, and I quote... The gospel of grace begins and ends with forgiveness. And people write songs with titles like Amazing Grace for One Reason. Grace is the only force in the universe powerful enough to break the chains that enslave generations. Grace alone melts ungrace. End quote. 